0: Oh, Father, nothing can compare with your glory. Let us behold you this morning in spirit and in truth as it is intended that your people would worship you. We pray you would attend us by the Holy Spirit according to your word and open your word to us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You got your Bibles? Okay, it's time. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. The application part of the great treatise to the Romans, to the Roman church of the first century by the great apostle Paul. You know, it is interesting that When Paul writes words down on a page, or as in this case, dictates it to his friend Tertius, we take him at his word. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He writes the words. They are inspired, meaning God, meaning breathed. Inspired means to breathe. And they're God-breathed words, and they come through a man. And this man wrote 13... And 14, if you believe he wrote Hebrews, <laughs> but he wrote a large section of the New Testament epistles. Five of them, keep in mind, he wrote from, not, uh, from a prison cell. <clears throat> and we have seen many men over the years and in our own experience, and in our own church history, and certainly in biblical history, when you go back To Genesis, and you think of Joseph, who spent a lot of time in prison and ended up doing some good things, (laughs) Um, some great things. Um, So as uh, Brother John has said, well, let me just say it this way. God works in mysterious ways. Wonders never cease. cease. Chapter 14, I'm going to read to you. I don't really know how to approach this. There's, There's so much here. I'm going to take it in parts, and I think I'll, I'll read you the first four, five verses this morning. We'll comment on those. And then next week, I'll read the first five verses and maybe the next section and so we can keep in mind the context. There's so much here, and it's a little back and forth, but I want to uh, <clears throat> unpack it somewhat systematically for us this morning. So this, this sermon in the series should serve as an introduction to this whole section And it's a very similar section to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and other places in the New Testament. Where Paul tells us how to treat each other. Oh, if we would learn that lesson. What a thing it would be if the Christians would learn how to treat each other. So let's see if we can't be taught this morning. So verses 1 through 5 of Romans 14 read like this. The apostle writes, receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let, him, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he'll be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. O Father, add your presence by the Holy Spirit to this, the reading of your word for your people this morning. Guide us and feed us with the deep things of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So he begins, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Oh, if these admonishments were broadly applied by the churches, what different bodies they would be. Paul never seems to try to correct things in advance. Have you you noticed that in Scripture? When you look back at church history, and you remember the great councils during the time of Constantine the 4th century, great council of Nicaea, they came together to decide on a number of things, the most important of which is what is the nature of Jesus Christ? Is he God or is he man? But that council would never have happened if there wasn't a raging heresy in the land to correct, you see. Paul didn't just say, you know, I think we'll have a great council, or Constantine didn't say, let's have a great council, and we'll bring up some problems that nobody really has, and we'll try to see if we can, um, you know, explain them away. No, the problems arise first, and then the epistle comes in as a corrective, or as an encouragement for doing well, you see. So that's what's happening here. The epistles are, therefore, reactions to things, to things that are presently troubling the church. And Paul sees this. When we get to chapter 16, you can read ahead, by the way, it's fair. Um, You'll find the last chapter, all he does is talk to people that he knows personally or has heard about. So things arise in the church, and the apostle writes a corrective letter to the churches to fix that thing. Um, It's been said that heresies cannot be corrected until they arrive on the scene. It's not as if in the infant church the apostles anticipated every bad doctrine or every possible problem that might arise and tried to prevent it from arising. Doesn't seem that's what's happening. So why suggest a problem as a problem before it's a problem? It's only after certain situations and beliefs and customs and practices take place that they can be effectively treated by teaching and corrected. And so it's reasonable to assume that there were problems with church unity in the church at Rome at that time, stemming from what? Things indifferent from unnecessary disputes. Friends, we love to dispute. I do. But Paul is pointing out that there are legitimate disputations, but I'm not going to call them disputations. I'm going to call those conversations because he's using dispute in a negative way. To dispute um, is more like to debate, okay, than to talk and to teach. Now, debates and disputations would be good if both sides agreed to be humble enough to say, you know, you're right about that. But we tend not to do that. We tend to dig our heels in sometimes even when we know we're wrong. Because we just don't like not being right. Someone might catch on that I'm not as smart as I I thought I was. And it really comes from that. Friends, it all has to do with humility. Come to a thing. Like Paul says, you think you know something, you know nothing. He's so good at just saying it that way. So there were problems with church unity or what Paul calls disputes over doubtful Things. That's conversations, leading, teaching, explaining. Those are acceptable approaches. You have conversations, you lead people, you take a younger brother or someone that's not familiar with a particular doctrine or a particular passage of scripture, and you lead them through it. And those are wonderful things. And that's what the body of Christ, that's the strength of the body of Christ. We don't want that to stop. We don't want conversations to stop. But disputes, on the other hand, I can only say, the, it, the word seems to carry with it a hard edge um, that becomes a contest of wills. Now, if I can be allowed to add my own impression to the admonishment of the apostle regarding disputes, I would say that disputes urges factional participation. It calls people to take sides, and I think that's what he's concerned with here. All right. And as soon as that's done, concerning a practice that some engage in and others don't, you begin to see this functional disunity in the church. Now, we're a small church, so there's, there's not a lot of factions. Thank God we couldn't afford a lot of factions in a little church like us. Um, we ought to be one big faction, right? Um, if we can own the principles in these five verses... We'll be a stronger church. And if we can meditate over the whole of the teaching of chapters 14 and 15, we will definitely be, have come a long way in our Christian walk with God as, a, as the body of Christ. You may remember, Paul doesn't like factions. Remember what he said to Corinth? It's in your notes. He said uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, For when one says, I am of Paul... And another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? That's kind of an insult. He's saying, You're not very spiritual when you act in that way. So, in other words, he's talking to Christians, but you can act as though you're not Christians. And he said, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that gave the increase in both cases. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field you are God's building don't take the bricks out of the building we need all the bricks factions are discouraged within the church we don't want to have two factions we don't want to have the ones over here that eat meat on the right and if you're a vegetarian please sit on the left you know we do it with gluten but that's as far as I'm going okay that's as far as I'm going All right. Gluten is totally unbiblical. It shouldn't even exist. Factions are discouraged with regard to doctrine. We can't say, well, we're going to be a unified church with the Calvinists over here, the Arminians over here, right, the meat eaters, the vegetable eaters. We can't separate according to doctrine. We have to strive to come together, and that has to do with tolerance of other people, even when somewhere in us we know they're wrong. But you have to, you know, I've I've said this so many times, and some of you know, you've heard me say it, being right is overrated. It may, you may lose by being right more than you gain sometimes. Sometimes patience and long-suffering with someone until they come along, and you'll find you learn in the process as well. But in obviously in Corinth, there were cults of personality. You know, The people that Paul got saved were on the right. And the people that Apollos got saved were on the left. And Paul was like, it's not a personality cult. There's only one personality in the church, Jesus Christ. Amen. The ministers are nothing. We just work for him. We're all one. The, the Lord will water and honor the labors of both. And we want them all here. even though certain individuals engage in things that others deem unseemly or unacceptable, there still has to be order. You might look at someone across the aisle and think, boy, I'm glad I don't do what he does. And Paul's urging you to take it no further than that. Surely there are things we engage in that we ought not to engage in. There are things that the word of God is clear on And those are fair game for disputation. There are certain things you you simply must believe if you're going to call yourself a Christian. There is a body of doctrine that is essential. That's not what this section is about. That's assuming those things are already well-grounded, and friends, we will dispute over those things. All right? But some things we engage in may not be popular things, but they're also not prohibited things. And those are the kinds of things he's getting to. We don't outlaw something just because some of us, or even most of us, don't like it. We can only outlaw it if God does. We don't make unbiblical rules. Now, we're at liberty to. Churches do it all the time. We call them the blessed traditions. We may not simply draw on our own opinions or establish traditions to decide on the morality or immorality of certain things. Such things are called things indifferent. They don't matter that much. Don't focus on them. They're not essential to our salvation. Things that aren't essential to our salvation is what he's talking about. And friends, I want to tell you, he's talking about things that aren't essential to our sanctification. You can be a vegetarian if you want. You can be a vegetarian if you want. You can be a meat eater if you want. But one can't despise the other. That's what's interesting is the thing you're standing on though I don't do that and you shouldn't it's the judgment you're making that is the sin the thing you're condemning is not a sin and that's what Paul's saying here God has received him he said right so There are things indifferent, and these are not essential to our salvation, and they're not disruptive of our sanctification. Our Christian walk, that is. They are morally neutral areas of life. Friends, get used to it. God didn't tell us everything. He wants us to work some things out and still be friends. There are personal preferences. Some people do things I would never dream of doing, and behind their backs I laugh at. So for purposes of an accurate approach to the text at hand, the examples given to illustrate the point are diet and festivals. He's talking about certain feast days that people consider important that others don't, and certain foods that some people consider are important and others don't. Those are the two areas he's using, using here as a representative list of differences. All right. Now, I personally believe there's nothing new under the sun. This isn't new ground. Things come up, but they come up in a new form. They don't come up as a new item. I'm convinced that every church dispute in the current time has arisen and been dealt with in former times. Oh, if we would only look at our history. Things arise in different forms, but rarely, if ever, arise in completely new ways. In other words, we don't break new ground for new heresies. The old heresies satan is very good at bringing them up again and having us uh troubled by them there's really no new ground where heresies are concerned no i think we've seen the full roster of heretical teaching and unbiblical practices and thank god we have the new testament to shed light on such things we have our glorious and not so glorious christian heritage to see how ignorance of our history has caused us to relive the same old doubts and disputes. But I'm going to put an end to it today once and for all. Oh, that I could do it. <clears throat> but having said all that, this chapter legitimizes a rethinking of old policies and traditions so that each one can be settled in his own mind. God doesn't want you to do something just because I browbeat you from the pulpit. He wants you to do it because... It's settled in your conscience. Now, if I've convinced you, that's one thing. Or if a, another brother has convinced you that something is wrong and you give it up, or something is right and you both engage in it, that's fine. But don't, what he's cautioning here is not to go against conscience. But that doesn't mean conscience has the last word. All right? The Word of God has the last word, and you can be taught it incrementally over time. We have to learn to be long suffering with things indifferent. So having said all that, this chapter legitimizes, as I said, a rethinking of old things. God would not have us spend our whole Christian life, friends, wringing our hands with guilt over things we eat or drink or the things we choose to celebrate. And we'll spend the next few sessions looking into the biblical teaching on things indifferent then and now in the churches of God. If only the rethinking of old, well-trodden things was attended by humility and a teachable spirit. So much schism and heartache would be avoided. You know, I have an opinion. I have a observation about things i find that people walk away just as they were ready to be blessed with understanding they walk away for lack of understanding just before they were ready to see the light it's a trick of the devil and it's done all the time i've had people stomp their feet walk out of this church never be seen again over things that really didn't even matter to god it was just a personal preference. Want me to give you an example? A long time ago, in 2006 it was, some of you were around here with me, some weren't, but I, I was going in for, my, for a heart operation. They found I had a defective valve, and they wanted to fix it, and they did. And uh, so I was getting ready to go in, and, um, and then... Um, It was a long haul. Things went badly for a month or so. I I won't get into all that, because that's not what the story's about. But when I came out, I was recovering, and I was getting better, and I was getting stronger. And a good friend of mine, another minister, called me up, and he was encouraging me. And I was glad to hear from him. We've been good friends over the years. And in the talking, here I am. I'm weak. I'm I'm recovering. I I wasn't well. And we're talking, and um, eschatology came up. People have all different views of eschatology. That's because it's not a primary issue. If it was, we'd have to beat it down and figure it out, friends. There's all kinds of new books. I see David Jeremiah's got his new book out on the rapture and everything. And, you know, um, a a lot of great men, you know, take that whole view. Um, But he started talking about these things. And and as, as it unfolded during the conversation, he found out that I don't agree. I don't have the same view as you. And um, I won't say it got heated. It didn't, but it got a little forceful and we were trying to make our points. And then he stood back and he went, oh, Dan, he goes, I'm so sorry. I called you to encourage you. And here I am browbeating you over my view of the end times. I said, no problem. I wasn't bothered by it, but I appreciated him saying that. But I said, but there's one thing I want to ask you about, the, about what we just argued about. I mean, obviously, we disagree on the particulars, just the particulars, right? I said, if there's an interim rapture coming, but I'm standing here, a believer in Christ, and I don't believe that rapture's coming. I think you're reading the word, you're twisting the word, and you're not reading it in the, in the, in the clearest way it should be represented, Um. If I don't believe the rapture's coming, and it comes, I still go, right? Right? I, it's just that I have to, as we're going up to God, I have to say, Jesus, I'm glad you were right. This is great. <laughs> but, but it doesn't mean, I, my salvation doesn't depend on whether I agree with your view of the end times. I'm still saved. And he went like this, because he knew, he knew I was right. What? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. All right, so it's a thing indifferent. You see what I mean? It's not essential to my salvation that I get it right about the end times. Friends, there's so much stuff that people use to, to put a, forth a view on these things. And, and by the way, the last time I said something like this, we lost a family. Because they found out that I didn't take the dispensational rapture view of the end times. And they marched out of the church a little angrily and never came back again. And this goes back some years now. And we loved them, and we, I just didn't know that. I knew people disagreed on these things, and I loved to um, talk about those things, but I didn't know someone. And we had friends say, that's, that's a secondary issue. In fact, that's a tertiary issue. You don't break fellowship over that. Um, so that was one of the things. Um, it's that kind of thing, I think, that we're talking about. I should be able to go home, which I did, and say, you know, I still love my, my pastor friend, Jerry. And I know he said that about me. We weren't, he wasn't like, I'm doubting his salvation. You know, that wasn't where we went with it. So we're not supposed to, like, be wringing our hands. Jesus, I ate that meat off to idols. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself now. I love that meat so much, I don't want to give it up. Um, and everybody's telling me it's wrong. You're still a Christian. That didn't change. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking into these things. A teachable spirit will help, as always. But when each person digs in his heels before he's considered, considered the pertinent texts, and taken heed to the established wisdom of the elders, then quarrels and disputes and church splits will forever be inevitable. I'm afraid they probably will forever be inevitable. It always amazes me that believers can still see themselves as though we're in a unique place in history. When history and the scriptures both declare that there's nothing new under the sun. I'm going to read it to you from Solomon. He said this, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. I'm always amazed that Solomon could rhyme in English like that. (laughs) Um, Is there anything of which it might be said? See, this is new. It's already been in ancient times before us. The problem is, he says, there's no remembrance of former things. So we think it's new, and it's not. Nor will there be any remembrance of things to come by those who will come after. In other words, there's your prophecy. There will be no remembrance. We have to continually go back and cover the same ground, it seems. Now, if I were to boil down the whole chapter of chapter 14 of Romans, my conclusion as to its context consists in two inviolable principles and two levels of Christian maturity. We have two principles for relating to one another here, and we have two levels of Christian maturity here, and that's all in the body of Christ. As to principles, the first one is this. There are things essential, and there are things indifferent. We have to accept that, friends. There are things and beliefs and convictions and practices and traditions that are not essential to salvation or even to sanctification. And those things ought never to disturb the loving unity of believers who are called to consist together in love. Things that are not essential should not disrupt, disrupt unity. Now, a second guiding principle is that we're not to judge one another with regard to those things. So those are the two principles. There are things indifferent, Friends, I wish God explained everything more clearly than he did. I read this morning how John was given the little book and he ate the book and it tasted like honey, but it made him feel sick. I don't know what that means. You know, I got my theories like everyone else. And be grateful that that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. though. But I mean, why couldn't he just say plain? Look, there's all different genres of literature and there's different conventions in those genres, there's metaphors and similes, right, and comparisons. And and, and Jesus uses parables. And and the Jews had to go and invent another genre of literature called apocalyptic literature, which nobody knows what it means. And I'm exaggerating, but um, you see what I'm talking about? It's not as though everything is explained. Some things aren't, and God doesn't apologize for that. Some things he's just not going to tell you the whole story on yet. Because he wants you to love your brother in spite of it. We are to beware that our judgments of one another, in and of themselves, um, may be disruptive and sinful. Friends, it isn't the thing your brother is doing that you disapprove of that's necessarily sinful. But it's your judgment of him. You're dismissing of him that is sinful. Now, how do we know that? Because the implication is obvious. Paul asks if God has received him as he is, who are you to criticize him in what he does? And so he punctuates the directive with an illustration. He says, who are you to judge another man's servant? You know, to his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he'll be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. He's saying, the man you're judging is not yours to judge. He belongs to, another. he belongs to his own master. Verse 2, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. <clears throat> so just as the, as the text points to two guiding principles for believers, it also points to two types of believers, right? He speaks of weak and strong. Now, he doesn't use the word strong until all the way in chapter 15, verse 1. But he, but he says here, He who eats only vegetables, he who is weak, eats only vegetables. We got to go in and, and look at and see what he means by weak. For the moment, he speaks of those who eat and those who refrain for conscience' sake. The overly conscientious here is referred to as weak. That's the first thing we have to recognize here the really careful guy the guy who's really afraid of his christian liberty he knows certain things are allowed but he thinks that brings him closer to sin or something and he has a and he's wringing his hands about whether or not it's right for him to do the thing he's doing all right and then there's the christian brother who realizes that god cleansed all things and what god has cleansed you must not call common and he's satisfied just eating what he eats And he's eating all to the glory of God. So for the moment, he speaks of those who eat and those who refrain for conscience sake. But it's the overly conscientious one that he calls weak. We've said that there remains within the community of believers certain beliefs and practices that are called doubtful things. Friends, it's just a plain fact of life that not everything is explained. And Paul makes no apology for such diversity consisting side by side within the same congregation. He doesn't care. He's not trying to hash out everything and get it all settled. He's saying some people for conscience sake are going to believe something and other people are going to believe something else. And as long as it doesn't affect our Christian walk with God, so be it. Paul makes no apology for such diversity consisting side by side within the same congregation. It seems it's the will of God for that to be the case. Clearly, in some ways, it's a strength to desire answers, and we do that. It's good to go to the word of God and say, let's see if we can nail down whether the thing in question is really a sinful thing or is it righteous, Um, We want explanations for everything, and certainly everything we claim to believe and to hold dear, we want to explain. Um, In other ways, it's a clear weakness to think that in this life we'll all reach the same conclusions about every conceivable matter, a situation. We're just not going to, right? There's too many things, God, it seems, does desire that we persist in peace regardless of certain differing convictions. For not every matter, friends, is of equal importance. I think I demonstrated that. Some things carry greater importance, friends, and some things are just not important. Now, if we elevate an unimportant thing to an important thing, we cause a schism, and that's what he's talking about here. That is the thing he's trying to get to. I believe that if we can ingest that principle as a spiritual directive and an important starting point, then we're well on our way to applying the whole teaching of Romans 14, which is a matter of tolerance, friends. Acceptance of one another, regardless of personal preferences or practices. Now, the areas that the apostle isolates for our inspection here in Romans is about food and days, festival days. Um, If you go back to the Old Testament, I could give you this job. Go back to the Old Testament. You know, um, he spoke to the Colossians of uh, new moons and Sabbaths. Sabbaths. When did he ever speak of the Sabbath as plural? Because there were many types of Sabbaths. In the scriptures, Zechariah talks about it. Zechariah talks about, well, there's the Sabbath of the fourth month, and there's the Sabbath of the fifth month, and there's the Sabbath of the tenth month. And you go in and you say, all through the Old Testament, you'll see there is no such law about those Sabbaths. The Jews just added them. We have Christian liberty to add Sabbaths. And What does the Sabbath mean? It means Shabbat. It means a rest, right? It means a rest. So they would come up with something to feast about. and some Like, for instance, Hanukkah is not in your Bible. It's just not there, friends. You'll find it in the intertestamental period, right? A lot of things arose during that period, the so-called silent years between Malachi and Matthew, right? But if you go into the Old Testament, you'll find that Zechariah points to these Sabbaths that we're not required by law to honor, by Mosaic law. The Jews aren't required. But they added them. And what is the Sabbath? Well, you're going to have a holiday on this day, so they make the day before it a Sabbath so you can get ready for it. And they did it, it seems, quite regularly. They added things. So we're at liberty. Friends, if we didn't have that liberty, there'd be no Christmas or Easter because they're also not biblical feast days, right? They're Christian days, but they're not biblical days. Um, and I don't want to get into that whole thing today, but... um. There's those who are weak in faith, and those are the ones who scruple over these small items. Things not required by Moses or anyone else. And then there are those who are kind of at peace with their Christian liberty. All right? And so Paul, he talks about this elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. In other words, you're like baby Christians. You were born and you stayed an infant you never grew. It's a little bit of, a, of an insult, it seems to me. From the book of Hebrews, we read, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. You're a milk sucker. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. There it is again, the immature Christian. And it seems here that we're being mildly chastised for remaining in that way. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. To the Ephesians, he writes, no longer be children. Grow up in all things. Don't be tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind. All right? Now, Lloyd-Jones insists upon a clear understanding of what is meant by weak. It doesn't mean weak faith. Weak in the faith is not the same as weak faith. Now, I have taught on faith before, and I don't think you can teach faith as a quantitative construction. It's not quantitative. It, it, oh, God, give me more faith. You don't need more. If you had faith as a mustard seed, you could move the mountain. If the mountain's standing there after you speak, then you don't even have faith, is what he's saying. All right? Now, of course, that's an ex- hyperbole. Right? He's doing it for emphasis. We haven't read of anyone. Even Elijah didn't move mountains. Apparently, Muhammad did. But, uh, you know, if the mountain doesn't come to to Muhammad, Muhammad will go to the mountain or something like that. Actually, it's the other way. But um, so we're talking about weak versus strong understanding. And friends, here's the hard thing. When a brother is judging someone else for something that's indifferent, he's characterized here as the weaker brother. Right? The stronger brother is the one that's happily taking the Christian liberty. That's what we're seeing here. Whenever these problems have come up in the church, and I've characterized it going right to this scripture and showing, the weak person is offended that, that Paul called him weak. That's why I say it takes a great amount of humility to even approach the subject. But Paul didn't seem to mind doing it. So we're talking about a person who's weak in understanding. He's saved. His faith is as strong as yours. It did the same job in his soul as yours did on you. In other words, faith the faith of both is not what's in question. Both the strong and weak brethren are indeed brethren received by God, but faith needs instruction. And that's the key to the whole matter. So I would point out from the verse from Ephesians... A thing I find to be missing from most sermons I've heard on the subject and that is friends we always talk about be careful what you do because of the weak brother you know I just read a lengthy biography of King James and you know in King James's day he was an Anglican and the Anglicans were against the Puritans and um the Puritans were trying to get rid of a lot of the Catholic stuff like the sign of the cross and they were trying to get rid of the vestments that they wore and all of these things and um and uh the anglicans came to king james and they said well we have to maintain those for the weaker brethren and james said how long are they going to be weak it's been going on 40 years (laughs) you know this is what you don't hear anyone say when you're reading this the weak are not entitled to stay weak and we are not going to become the tyranny of the weak the weak don't run the place you see what i'm saying So the key to the whole matter really is humility and looking at the word for what it says. And the whole point is to try to lure the weak brethren into enough teaching to become stronger than they are. The weak should not be indulged to the point of remaining weak, and neither should the strong dismiss the weak as terminally weak or inconsequential due to his present weakness. So he's saying this. What the weak, the problem the weak brother has is he judges others. The problem that the strong brother has is he doesn't care what the weak brother says. He doesn't care that it's bothering his conscience. So you see, there's a strength and weakness in both. So neither should the strong dismiss the weak as inconsequential or not important. Strength of faith and understanding is always the goal. So since the process of strengthening, is an ongoing process. The so-called strong are admonished to receive the weaker brethren as true brethren, as beloved brethren, and to tolerate them and placate them until they reach maturity. And, and the, the hard thing to understand there is it can take a very long time. That's what long-suffering's all about. So in verse 3, he said, Let not him who eats despise him who does not. Let him who who eats the stronger brother not despise him who does not eat the one he called the weaker brother because he eats only vegetables. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received both. So like Paul, the trouble I've encountered with this issue in the church is that the weak brother does not see himself as weak. He thought all the restrictions he put on himself made him strong that's difficult because who does that friends the pharisees did that that's exactly what the pharisees did they they didn't want to break this law here so they corralled it in with all these protective devices these prohibitions of things so that you could never possibly get to the place where you break the actual law but then they said that all these devices are law too they rob people of their liberties. So the weak man believes that his convictions about certain things elevate him to a position of strength. If you know any vegetarians, you know what I mean. People take stances on all kinds of things, but we may not take a thing indifferent, and vegetarianism is clearly that. That's the one he's using to tell us and we can't just independently turn our weakness into a strength. Oh no, my vegetarian makes me my vegetarianism makes me stronger than you because your meat has additives in it that are killing you, and my vegetables don't, and they're keeping me strong. What, whatever view you take, some vegetarians take the view that meat's bad for you. Others take the view that it's wrong to kill animals to feed ourselves, or whatever it might be. All right. So they usually uh, vegetarians ism is usually adopted as a personal practice on the basis that it's believed that meat is inherently bad for the human body. Anyone, friends? We had a really good beloved friend. Her, her name was Elaine, and she was a vegetarian. And um, she, she was easy to get along with, but she was constant. <laughs> she was constantly... Her, her husband had a little so- hard sausage that he kept out in the shed and had to hide from her. <laughs> Um, and we loved them. I won't say their names because I don't, uh, some of you might know them, but I don't want to put them on, on display here today. But we, uh, they were just good friends. But she was constant about um, certain things. Like she didn't think you could eat um, for enjoyment. Christian should eat for strength, she used to say. Um, needless to say, she was skinny, the rest of us were overweight, but uh, that's another discussion. And some think it's morally wrong to kill animals to feed ourselves. Um, As Christians, being good stewards of our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the earth, the loving creation of God, we should not ingest anything that's known to be harmful to us or cause us to kill. That's the vegetarian view, various views. All right. In our time, such things have been advanced to refer to anything that the evolving sciences of the moment... Science is evolving, right? The evolving sciences of the moment deem harmful or unfit, right? I remember things that they tell you are good today were bad. Coffee's back up there. It's good for you. So expect, friends, that in time to come that sugars and fats and alcohol and carbohydrates and artificial sweeteners are all going to be prohibited by some believers. In fact, they already are. In fact... I I once read a biography of Robert E. Lee, and it just came to mind. I'm not saying anything about Robert E. Lee. There were many men like him who were Christians who had certain scruples about eating and drinking certain things, and he would take no stimulants. I don't know if you knew this. He wouldn't drink alcohol, coffee, or tea. No stimulants, he called them. He thought they were uh, bad, uh, they affected the spirit in harmful ways, and he wouldn't Eight of them and a lot of devout Christian brethren of the time took that what's called the temperance view. Um, So before you go off dismissing certain brethren for drinking wine, know that there's some weaker brother around the corner that may be equally judgmental of you for your morning coffee. And if you put um, Splenda in it, you're really in trouble. There's no way you can be a Christian and drink coffee in Splenda. No, but see, that's not where we can go with this. You can't even go. You know, you'd be a much better Christian if you just used sugar <laughs> or stevia. See, that's what I use. I'm wait, I'm up here. Now for now, I'm having some fun with this, but it's a serious subject. For historical context, we should note that arguments about which foods are acceptable for believers was a raging reality in the churches. We can see the Judaizers, friends, written all over this, right? But there were concerns by former pagans as well. Um, I remember being at a at a wedding one time, wedding reception, a long time ago, and I think we were just out of high school, and a couple that we knew got married, and um, I was at the table with a Orthodox Jewish friend of mine, and everything they served, he couldn't eat. He couldn't eat anything they had because even if they if they had something that was kosher, they couldn't prepare it in a kosher way. They finally settled, I don't know how they did this, on an omelet. He was able to eat an omelet. The rest of us were having like, you know, uh, lamb rib chops or something. And, you know, my friend, they had the omelet. Um, but that's kind of what we're talking about here. Let me see if I can explain this a little. This, the kind of eating only vegetables here is not the same as people thinking meat's bad for you or you shouldn't kill an animal. It has to do with food offered to idols. Now, he's writing to Rome. Now, Rome is a great pagan city, right? There are temples to all the gods all over the place. He wrote to Corinth of the same thing. Corinth was well-known for the temple marketplaces, all right? Now, you may have become a Christian, and you got, and you had, you know, maybe you were, uh, um, you know, a wealthier sort of person, and you would buy your meat in the best places, and those were the temple markets. The only problem is, the butcher in the temple market um, offered the, the, the meat that he butchered to the god who was the god of that temple, whether it was Artemis or Zeus or, you know, um, Apollo or whoever it might have been, he offered it to the god. And there were Jews in the church who said, you know, you really shouldn't eat that meat that those pagans eat because they offered it to their idols. But the strong brother saying, he's in his mind saying, but I thought we were past all that. There are no idols. They're not real. Right? There's only God. The idols aren't real. They really can't affect the, f- the food. It's superstition to think that the idol poisoned the food. He's not even there. Right? So the stronger brother eats the good meat. He can afford it and he eats it. And the weaker brother says you shouldn't. Now, the problem here is the stronger brother should care that the weaker brother is offended by this. So they both have a part in making this work. I remember the last time I heard this preached on. It was at Grace Bible Church many years ago. And um, in fact, I was one of the preachers that, that day as well. And Chris Bass, uh, Dr. Bass from uh, from Texas, he was actually the pastor at Andrews Church at the time there in uh, uh, Redeemer Fellowship there in um, Watertown. And he came in, he dealt, with, he dealt with chapter 14, and he told these two stories. He told one story of this, uh, this um, group of, um, he was at a conference, and there was this group of uh, German believers over here, and there was this um, <coughs> group of, um, I don't know, I think it was Swedish believers, this other ethnic group over here. And whenever they would break, the, the German group would go out and have beer, the Swedish group would say, that's terrible. Christians shouldn't do that, but they light up their cigars. You know what I mean? And so they were... Now, he gave this example, and I thought, wow, well, he, he, he took a little risk there, you know, to, uh, to use those two things. But um, I thought he made the point very well, but he took a lot of criticism for acting like those things were indifferent. They were vehement anti-drinkers and anti-smokers in the church even though not a word about it in scripture. You see what I mean? I, I, I can tell you the young Spurgeon took a big cigar one day and lit it up and said I'm going to smoke this cigar to the glory of God. You're familiar with the story? He's very famous. Right? And he was fond of his beer. But later on in life he had to succumb to the pressure of the Baptist Association he had to give up both. Which is not a bad thing. I'm just saying that it, it wasn't wrong that he smoked the cigar. It's wrong that he did it in their faces, though they objected. You see what I mean? Even Spurgeon makes mistakes. You sorry you know that about Spurgeon now? <laughs> so that was the story in the meat markets. If you were going to eat meat in Corinth, for instance, it was probably sacrificed to an idol. Now, for me, let me tell you, as long as it doesn't bother any of you, I'm happy with the meat, as long as it's, it, it's good and it's at a good price that I can afford. And somebody knows how to cook it. So I went into the uh, part of the historical thing that you can see how that would be a problem, and then uh, the Jews would be... Um, against the pagans. But even among the pagans, they would say, no, we're in Christ now. We can't eat that food anymore. So you'd have this dispute that really shouldn't be there. It doesn't really matter to God. What matters is, can you work this out among yourselves in love? That's what mattered to God. The weakness of the weak is concerned with misplaced convictions, The apostle is well with any personal conviction with regard to foods or other such things. That's why he said to the Colossians, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, what he means here, he's not wiping away the uh, responsibility of the stronger brethren. What he's doing here is let them not do that as as a philosophy, philosophical attachment to the gospel, all right? Which, which foods you eat, which drinks you drink, and which festivals you take part in do not affect your standing before God when he saves you. You don't have to follow the right festivals to be saved. You see what I mean? So he told them, very straightforward, let no one judge you in food or drink. So you see, the problem is not in the choosing. It's in the imposition of your personal preferences on other people. You can do many things just because you prefer them. But you can't tell all the rest of us to do it. But if you do, we have to consider in love that we're offending you and we have to curtail our liberty. You see how it's both sides? So you see the problem's not in the choosing, it's in the imposition of your personal preferences on other people. So the liability in the weakness of the weaker brother is the tendency to judge on matters of indifference. And as the verse suggests, the tendency in the strong is to despise or rather to dismiss the scruples of the weaker brother because you just think they're frivolous. So the weaker, the abstainer, must not suppose that his conviction makes him spiritually superior. And the stronger, the one who eats with a clear conscience should not blithely and carelessly dismiss the offense he causes the weaker brother by his own indulgence. Right? You should be ready to say, brother, uh, forgive me, I didn't know that my partaking of this food offended you. I'll not do this in your presence. You see what I mean? That's the kind of thing he's looking for. And so I'll say that it's entirely likely that the stronger brother has already traveled the road of personal examination that the weaker brother is just starting out on. And he probably knows God's vision to Peter in the great sheet. Do you remember the great sheet, everybody? Acts chapter 11. God was trying to get Peter to go out to Cornelius' house, but Cornelius was, was pagan. He was a centurion, right? And Peter didn't think it was right for him to go in the centurion's house and eat with him. And you know, Peter got in trouble with that later on in life, too, in Antioch, and Paul talks about it in, in Galatians. He says, Peter was wrong, I withstood him to his face, because um, he played the hypocrite with James and some of the other Jews who came, and they would not eat with the pagans in, in, in uh, the province of Galatia. Uh, And so they caused a faction themselves. They only would eat with the Jews and the pagans were over here. It was very wrong, and Paul dealt with it. He said it was wrong. So what happens? Peter rests his conscience on the fact that in the vision, where all manner of birds and beasts and creeping things were presented with the command to kill and eat. And then God says, What has cleansed, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. All right, because Peter has said, I, I don't eat those things, Lord. So the Lord gives him this vision. He's, he's like in a trance or he's in a dream, and the, and the vision comes down, and it's his sheet. And the sheet opens up, and all these four-footed animals and, you know, creep, creepy things and all these things come out, and the voice from God says, kill and eat. All right? And what does Paul say? Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Well, that's good to know. Peter was a good Jew. But, you know, those laws have expired, and God's giving growth to his apostle. The elder, maturing, informed apostle adhered to and understood the double entendre of the great sheet, and he went off and preached to the Gentiles. Do you see the point there? And so the apostle, the weak apostle, became the strong evangelist because God showed him his liberty. Barriers of conscience were removed by God for the sake of the gospel. And so the same is true in the church. Barriers of conscience may be removed. We may relate to the unclean things of this world while remaining clean. You know, that was one of the things that was continually... That the Pharisees and others continually um, charged Jesus with he eats with sinners, and that should have meant to that meant to them that he is a sinner. sinners eat with sinners right sinners eat what sinners eat, he drinks what sinners drink, uh, therefore he 's a glutton because he eats with them and he 's a drunkard because he drinks with them. They said all these things about him, none of course were true you 're not affected out from outside the body, Jesus said it this way, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. In other words, what you guys are saying is defiling you. What I'm doing isn't defiling me. So he's teaching, you see. What may not be missed in the example is that there is a process to attaining the level of liberty in Christ that the strong person has. And that process, albeit a slow process, is to be tolerated by the stronger brethren friends for as long as it takes. And I would suggest that the careful course of the weaker brother is not a bad thing it's a good thing. He should take it he should take it slowly. He shouldn't just say, "Well, if you can eat that, I'll eat it." It should be right in his conscience first. He should have looked it over. He should understand his liberties. He should know in his heart he's doing the right thing by eating. You see what I mean? So you don't shove the food offered to idols in his face and tell him to eat it. You refrain from eating it. So we ought to be careful in arriving at our full spiritual age. We're not just to jump in, all right? Paul wrote of this process to the Ephesians, and he said he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, For the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. That's how long. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, strong Christians who rejoice in your liberties, praise God. You have your liberties and you know they are not offensive to God but we have to bring the weaker brethren along with us. We don't just get to go it alone. That's the whole point of the body. Verse 4. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. In other words, God hasn't given up on him. God hasn't judged him. Why are you? Now, it seems to me the directive is plain enough. It was perhaps plainer in Paul's day it was perhaps plainer in the first century when, when you said you were a Christian then there was a lot more at stake I think than when you do it today in the United States don't you think I mean they were still making playthings of Christians in, uh, in uh, Nero's court right so I mean when you got a guy next to you that's claimed he's of Christ I really think you should take him at his word because it's a costly thing to do in that time um, It was more sacrificial, more dangerous than it is today. For a man to say that another man was not a Christian because he ate meat sacrificed to idols or to say that another man could not be a believer because he ate pork or shellfish showed great arrogance. Arrogance is the enemy, friends. Humility is the friend. Particularly while it was still a time in the empire when believers were sought out and killed for sport. All right. So my point is this If your judgment of another person's personal life Is not to strip him completely of his testimony And say that he's not a Christian Then you must receive him as a fellow Christian He's not your property to judge He, like you, belongs to another Let his own master be the judge of him It's like when a stranger disciplines your children And you're sitting right there you think they're, they're being okay, and the stranger's telling them to quiet down or, or something. I mean, it's, it's kind of offensive. You're courting the offense of the father and mother who are sitting there, right? Because the kids don't belong to you. They belong to them. Um, turn with me to Numbers chapter 12. I'm going to give you an, an illustration of this, and I'll just close with the, uh, with the scripture from, from Numbers chapter 12. And I think we'll get the point You remember, Moses had a sister, Miriam, and a brother, Aaron. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Did you know that? Moses married a, a black girl. I don't know if the, the blackness was the problem or if it was the fact that she wasn't a Hebrew. Or some people think that that was the poor of the same wife, but most people, I, I think it's reasonable to think that he became a a man with two wives. He was a polygamist like many of the patriarchs were at the time. But they took particular exception to this. Now, we never find out if God is angry at Moses or not because he's so angry that his sister and brother told on him. And watch how this works. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? That's like when we say, well, I'm going to tell that brother that he shouldn't do what he's doing because I have the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? So does he. And the Holy Spirit hasn't spoken conclusively on some of these matters. Now, the man Moses was very humble, it says, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out, and the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they And they both went forward and he said, hear now my words. God is rendering judgment. I presume at this point in time, they think he's going to yell at Moses. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face let it not be said god does not have favorites i've heard people oh he treats us all equally i don't see it the whole point of election is ought all men are treated equally right but moses was a clear favorite of god he just put him higher than all the prophets and he said i speak with him face to face even plainly and not in dark sayings And he sees the form of the Lord. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. She remained that way for a few days. Um, So if you do this, you will instantly become a leper. Just want you to know that. No, the, the point is, we never find out God's ruling on the Ethiopian woman. We only find out that he didn't like you speaking about his servant. He'll discipline his servant, you see. And I'll close with that. Father, in Jesus' name, give us a great revelation of these principles and of our responsibilities to the brethren let our responsibilities be to owe man anyth- owe man, no man nothing, but to love him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.